If you have your copy of God's Word, I invite you to turn with me to the book of Esther. The book of Esther. A couple of years ago, I was listening to a seminary professor uh, give a series of lectures about uh, how to preach from the Old Testament. And uh, one of the questions that came up in, uh, in some of the Q&A in the lectures, uh, I don't even remember what the, the question was about, but he talked about the book of Esther and how it hangs together as one complete story. It doesn't lend itself well to being broken up over several weeks to be preached through, that you really have to... Uh, understand it as a whole to get the message that God wants us to hear from it. In fact, the message is really about God Himself. Um, interestingly, interestingly enough, though He is never mentioned explicitly in the book, the book is really all about Him. And He said, in fact, that this theme of God and His providence is so central uh, that the professor said that although He had never been able to preach the book of Esther the way He wanted to, one of His students once preached the book of Esther the way he wanted to. And the way he wanted to was this. The minister got up on Sunday morning, opened his Bible, told the congregation to turn to Esther, and he proceeded to read through the entire book, at which point when he was done, he simply looked at them and said, maybe there really is a God. Closed his book and sat down and they sang and were dismissed. And he said that, that ultimately, you know, uh, uh, he never did it, but his student did. And he, and he just laughed at that because ultimately that's what the book is getting us to see is the mighty hand. In some ways, as we will, as we will see in a few minutes, the almost oppressive hand of God's providence and sovereignty moving in and out behind the scenes in very obvious ways. Now, I know some of you are probably thinking, is that what he's going to do? Is he just going to... No, unfortunately for some of you, that's not what I'm going to do. But uh, it is important that we get the, the whole shot of Esther. And rather than just summarizing, what I'm going to do is alternate back and forth between reading key chunks of the book and summarizing uh, other chunks as well. And so this morning's sermon will be a little bit different than normal, and that will have uh, a telling, a complete telling of the story of Esther, and then we will seek to uh, uh, reflect on it and look and see uh, what Esther has for us as Christians this morning. As we, we begin, we need to be reminded that the story of Esther takes place in the midst of uh, the exiles returning from Persia um, under that king there. And I'm just going to tell you that in the book of Esther, um, King Xerxes uh, here, the, the Hebrew spelling is uh, ah Ahasuerus. And uh, that's a bit of a tongue twister, particularly if you're reading fast. So if I just slip and say Xerxes, uh, you'll know it's the same king, okay? Uh, in fact, it's the same king that we see in the book of Ezra because between Ezra chapter 6 and chapter 7, there is a large gap of time in which the book of Esther fits in in this 10-year, uh, over a 10-year span. And so though some of the Jews are returning from the land of Israel, um, the book of Esther focuses on those who have remained in Persia. And so I will try and help you if you would desire to follow along as I read, beginning now at chapter 1, verse 1. Now in the days of Ahasuerus, the Ahasuerus who reigned from India to Ethiopia over 127 provinces. In those days when King Ahasuerus sat on his royal throne in Susa, the capital, in the third year of his reign, he gave a feast for all his officials and servants. 
the army of Persia and Media and the nobles and governors of the provinces were before him. While he showed the riches of his royal glory and the splendor and pomp of his greatness for many days, 180 days. And when these days were completed, the king gave for all the people President Susa, the capital, both great and small, a feast lasting for seven days in the courts of the garden of the king's palace. There were white cotton curtains and violet hangings fastened with cords of fine linen and purple to silver rods and marble pillars and also couches of gold and silver on a mosaic pavement of porphyry, marble, mother of pearl, and precious stones. Drinks were served in golden vessels, vessels of different kinds, and the royal wine was lavished according to the bounty of the king. And drinking was according to this edict, there is no compulsion. For the king had given orders to all the staff of his palace to do as each man desired." Queen Vashti also gave a feast for the women in the palace that belonged to King Ashuerus. On the seventh day, when the heart of the king was merry with wine, he commanded Mehuman, Bizroth, Harbona, Bigtha, Abagatha, Zethar, and Carcass, the seven eunuchs who served in the presence of the king, Ahasuerus, to bring Queen Vashti before the king with her royal crown in order to show the peoples and the princes her beauty, for she was lovely to look at. But Queen Vashti refused to come at the king's command delivered by the eunuchs. At this, the king became enraged and his anger burned within him. Now, we're not exactly sure what the king asked Vashti uh, to do. Some believe it was, um, you know, uh, something more than just appearing, uh, perhaps only with the crown on. But, but frankly, we don't know and it doesn't really matter. For the sake of the story, what matters is she refused to obey the king's command, her husband's command, and thus that made him furious. Now, to the king's credit, he did not act in haste, but rather called his advisors to himself and said, what, what should be done here? Technically, the death penalty was probably due for Vashi. For though she was queen, frankly, she was just one of a number of concubines that he would have had in the harem that he simply picked out of to stand next to him as the queen in the royal function. And so the, um, uh, all of his advisors who knew the law from across the land, uh, their argument is very interesting. It goes something like this. She has now set precedent as queen in disobeying her husband that will now allow other wives to disobey their husbands and the whole kingdom is going to fall apart. Therefore, what you have to do is punish her by at the very least putting her away as queen and thus, uh, uh, and, and thus issuing more or less a royal censure on that kind of behavior. And so uh, he did that very thing. Uh, and she never appeared before King Xerxes again, leaving him then free to select another queen. But it was a number of years later before it was decided to hold a beauty contest from all the virgins gathered from the empire to find this new queen. Each woman would have, in fact have a year to make herself presentable to the, to the king and to prepare in whatever way she wanted. And she would be given one night with the king. And that was not to perform some circus act, okay? Uh, it was one night with the king in his bed, and the one that brought him the most pleasure at the end will be declared queen in place of Vashti. Now picking up in chapter 2, verse 5. Now there was a Jew in Susa, the citadel, whose name was Mordecai, the son of Jair, the son of Shimi, the son of Kish, a Benjamite, who had been carried away from Jerusalem among the captives, carried away with Jeconiah, king of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had carried away. He was bringing up Hadassah, that is Esther, the daughter of his uncle, for she had neither father nor mother. The young woman had a beautiful figure and was lovely to look at. And when her father and mother died, Mordecai took her as his own daughter. 
So when the king's order and his edict were proclaimed, and when many young women were gathered in Susa the citadel in custody of Haggai, Esther also was taken into the king's palace and put in the custody of Haggai, who had charge of the women. And the young, women, uh, the young woman, rather, that is Esther, pleased him and won his favor. And he quickly provided her with her cosmetics and her portion of food and with seven chosen young women from the king's palace and advanced her and her young women to the best place in the harem. Esther had not made known her people or kindred, for Mordecai had commanded her not to make it known. And every day Mordecai walked in front of the court of the harem to learn how Esther was and what was happening to her. A year goes by between Esther being gathered now and uh, into the king's harem and the time that would take place when she would stand before the king. And again, it's not anything uh, romantic or sweet. It's really quite a lecherous thing. Nevertheless, uh, Esther comes away making him the happiest and therefore she is chosen to be his queen. Verse 15, when the turn came for Esther, the daughter of Abihail, the uncle of Mordecai, who had taken her as his own daughter to go into the king, she asked for nothing except what Haggai, the king's eunuch, uh, had suggested, uh, who, was in, who was in charge of the women. Now Esther was winning favor in the eyes of all who saw her. And when Esther was taken to King Ahasuerus into his royal palace in the tenth month, which was in the month of Tebeth, in the seventh year of his reign, the king loved Esther more than all the women, and she won grace and favor in his sight more than all the virgins, so that he set the royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. Esther is chosen as queen, and a royal feast is given in celebration of the king's decision. And in all of this, Esther never tells anyone, not even the king, that she is in fact a Jew. Yet it was a Jew, uh, her relative Mordecai, who around this time overhears a plot to kill the king. Some of the king's uh, uh, servants themselves in his court were going to dethrone him. And yet he tells Esther, who in turn tells the king, those men are arrested, killed, and the very, what is considered loyal actions of Mordecai are recorded in the royal history books. And in chapter 3 we read, after these things, King Ahasuerus pro, uh, promoted Haman, the Agagite, the son of Hamadetha, and advanced him and set his throne above all the officials who were with him. And all the king's servants who were at the king's gate bowed down and paid homage to Haman, for the king and so commanded concerning him. But Mordecai did not bow or pay homage to him. Then the king's servants who were at the king's gate said to Mordecai, Why do you transgress the king's command? But when they spoke to him day after day, he would not listen to them, they told Haman, in order to see whether Mordecai's words would stand, for he had told them that he was a Jew. And when Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage to him, to him Haman was filled with fury. But he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone. So as they made known to him the people of Mordecai, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews, the people of Mordecai, throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus. It's then that Haman begins seeking the favor of the gods for this plan to destroy all of the Jews, specifically by casting lots, which in Persian uh, culture was called pur. Every day he would cast a lot to see, is this the day to go before the king and present my plan to exterminate the Jews? And every day what he was looking for were for the Persian gods to cause the dice to land a certain way that he knew today is the favorable day. Today is the day to go and present my plan. But this didn't happen for over a year. Day by day, we're told, month by month, uh, the lots are being cast over and over again, and it's never the favorable day until the day that it is. 
Haman then begins his plan a year later by going to the king and explaining how this Jewish people have spread throughout the empire and they are not, though, real Persians. They have been brought in from exile. More than that, they don't follow Persian laws. They follow their own laws and therefore they've been a royal pain in the neck to kings that have come before and and to all the local governors. And what we should really do is not put up with them, but just exterminate them. Haman himself offers to make a contribution to the royal treasury, essentially paying for the efforts of this extermination, 10,000 talents of silver, which would have been a small fortune for that day. The king declares that this plan should be put into place and declares that there on a very specific day that is to come, in one day, uh, everybody, all of the Persians, all of the kings, all of the citizens, have free reign to, to exterminate any Jew that they can, can be found. Mordecai, of course, hears of this plan as it's posted everywhere, and he begins to wail and mourn and wear sackcloth and ashes, and he expects Esther to do something. She's the queen. She's in the royal court. Surely she can do something. But she writes back and says, I can't do anything without endangering my own life. I can't even come before the king unless he calls me, lest he kill me. And so in chapter 4, verse 12, we read, they told Mordecai what Esther had said. Then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, Do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will arise for the Jews from another place, but you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, Go gather all the Jews to be found in Susa, and hold a fast on my behalf, and do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. And I and my young women will also fast as you do. Then I will go to the king, though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. Mordecai then went away and did everything as Esther had ordered him. Esther then prepares herself by putting on her royal robes and stands in the inner court of the king's palace as these three days are complete. She allows herself to be seen by the king and it's the moment where everything could go bad. He can either say, why is she here, uh, out like Vashti, or he can extend his royal scepter showing that he acknowledges her presence and approves of her coming. And that is the very thing that he does. She approaches, kisses the scepter, in acknowledgement of the king's grace. And he says, what do you want? Just ask me anything and I'll give it to you. And she says, well, I don't want to tell you now. Let's hold a dinner instead. Let's have a dinner tonight and I'll tell you tonight uh, what it is that I desire. And so she also tells him, invite your advisor, Haman. So that night they dine and they have a nice feast and everything is happy and pleasant. And the king says, okay, so what do you want? And yet again, she puts him off. And she says, you know, this dinner has been so nice. Let's do it again tomorrow night. Invite Haman again. And tomorrow night, I'll tell you what I want from you. And so uh, the king agrees and Haman went out very happy because he considered all of this a special honor for him to be invited to a banquet that the queen herself has prepared just for the king. And yet as he leaves the palace, his joy very quickly turns to anger, for he again sees Mordecai, who again refuses to bow and pay him the honor that is due him because of his station in the royal court. And so that night, at the advice of his wife, Haman plans to raise a special gallows upon which to hang Mordecai and to kill him. And so on chapter 6, verse 1, we read then, On that night, however, the king could not sleep. And he gave orders to bring the book of memorable deeds, the chronicles, and they were read before the king. 
And it was found written how Mordecai had told about Bigthana and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs who guarded the threshold and who had sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. And the king said, What honor or distinction has been bestowed on Mordecai for this? The king's young men who attended him said, Nothing has been done for him. And the king said, Who is in the court now? Now Haman had just entered the court of the king's palace to speak to the king about having Mordecai hang on the gallows that he had prepared for him. But the king's young men told him, Haman is there, stay in the court. And the king said, Let him come in. So Haman came in and the king said to him, What should be done to the man whom the king delights to honor? And Haman said to himself, Who would the king delight to honor more than me? So Haman said to the king, For the man who the king delights to honor, let royal robes be brought, which the king himself has worn, and the horse the king has ridden on, and on whose head the crown, the royal crown, is set. And let the robes and the horse be handed over to the king's most noble officials. Let them dress the man whom the king delights to honor. Let them lead him on the horse through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, Thus it shall be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. Then the king said to Haman, Hurry! Take the robes and the horse, just as you have said, and do so to Mordecai the Jew, who sits at the king's gate. Leave out nothing that you have mentioned. So Haman took the robes and the horse, and he dressed Mordecai, and led him through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, Thus it shall be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. It's very much an ironic twist that Mordecai was expecting to receive this great honor and in in, in the process say, I want this Mordecai guy put to death when in fact the king flips the whole thing around and forces Haman uh, to pay homage to Mordecai, his enemy. And if that wasn't enough, he gets home and is uh, just uh, in, in distress before his wife and his wife is no comfort to him either. And she says to him, if Mordecai before whom you have begun to fall is of the Jewish people, you will not overcome him but will surely fall before him. And that very night, Esther's second feast is held, and the king's servants fetch Haman for dinner. After the meal, the king asks Esther, now, now, what is your wish? What would you like me to do? And it's here that Esther puts everything on the line. She says to him, I have been sold into not just slavery, but destruction, me and all of my people. She says slavery would be okay, but this is certain death. And the king gets furious and he says, who has done this wretched and horrible thing? And it's here that Esther points across the table and says, that wicked Haman has done this thing. Well, the king is obviously distraught. Haman is his closest advisor, is the highest man, second only to the king in his court. He's already given destruction for the Druze. Haman has tricked him into destroying Esther's own people. And so as the king storms out to think, Haman throws himself down before Esther to beg for mercy. But we read in chapter 7, verse 8, But the king returned from the palace garden to the place where they were drinking wine as Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was. And the king said, Will he even assault the queen in my presence, in my own house? As the word left the mouth of the king, they covered Haman's face. Then Harbona, one of the eunuchs in attendance on the king, said, Moreover, the gallows that Haman has prepared for Mordecai, whose word saved the king, is standing at Haman's house, fifty cubits high. And the king said, Hang him on that. So they hanged Haman on the gallows that he had prepared for Mordecai. Then the wrath of the king was abated. You need to understand that very often when we think of a gallows, what do we think of but a noose? This was a far less 
nice way of killing someone. The gallows and being hanged in Persia was nothing less than a massive pole with a spike on the end. The person to be hanged was lifted up onto the spike, sat on it, and his own weight would force him down until he was completely impaled. It was a gruesome death, one that Haman had planned for Mordecai, but in fact, he himself wound up experiencing. After Haman was condemned, in chapter 8, verse 1, we read, On that day, King Ahasuerus gave the Queen Esther the house of Haman, the enemy of the Jews. And Mordecai came before the king, for Esther had told what he, uh, what he was to her. And the king took off his signet ring, which he had taken from Haman, and gave it to Mordecai. And Esther sent Mordecai over the house of Haman. Then Esther spoke again to the king. She fell at his feet and wept and pleaded with him to avert the evil plan of Haman the Agagite and the plot that he had advised against the Jews. When the king held out the golden scepter to Esther, Esther rose and stood before the king, and she said, If it please the king, and if I have found favor in his sight, and if the thing seems right before the king, and I am pleasing in his eyes, let an order be written to revoke the letters devised by Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadetha, which he wrote to destroy the Jews who were in all the provinces of the king. For how can I bear to see the calamity that is coming to my people, or how can I bear to see the destruction of my kindred? The king allows Esther not just to write an edict revoking the old, but to write a new edict, one in which it is granted royal authority for the, view, for the Jews to take revenge on all their enemies. Permission is given to any Jew in any Persian city to not just defend themselves, but to kill, destroy, and annihilate any of their enemies that they perceive they have, and that is exactly what they do. Instead of a day of destruction for the Jews, the day Haman set becomes a day of blood for the enemies of the Jews. Even the ten sons of Haman himself were captured and hanged on that day. And at the end, we really get to the point of why this story was written down in the first place, chapter 9, verse 20. The author tells us, Mordecai recorded these things and sent letters to all the Jews who were in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus, both near and fall, bringing them to keep the 14th day of the month, Adar, and also the 15th day of the same, year by year, as the days on which the Jews got relief from their enemies, and as the month that had been turned for them from sorrow into gladness and from mourning into a holiday, that they should make them days of feast and gladness, days for sending gifts of food to one another and gifts to the poor. So the Jews accepted what they had started to do and what Mordecai had written to them. For Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamathadatha, the enemy of all the Jews, had plotted against the Jews to destroy them and had cast purr, that is, lots, to crush and to destroy them. But when it came before the king, he gave orders in writing that his evil plan that he had devised against the Jews should return on his own head and that he and his son should be hanged on the gallows. Therefore they called these days Purim, after the term Pur. Therefore, <coughs> because of all that was written in this letter and of what had happened, uh, of what they had faced in this matter and of what happened to them, the Jews firmly obligated themselves and their offspring and all who joined them, that without fail they would keep these two days according to what was written at the time appointed every year, that these days should be remembered and kept throughout every generation in every clan, province, and city, and that these days of Purim might never fall into disuse among the Jews, nor should the commemoration of these days cease among their descendants. That is the story of Esther. It is, in fact, an amazing story, nothing less than a literary achievement. The tone is even similar to a modern-day O. Henry story and its portrayal of irony and reversals of fortune. But the book of Esther is much more than just a literary masterpiece. It is not just a well-crafted story. It is history. 
these events really happened. There really was a king with a near unpronounceable name of Ahasuerus, a Mordecai, a Haman, and an Esther. More than that, Esther is not just history, it is historical theology as it's part of the Word of God. Therefore, it carries lessons for us that we should learn, which will help us to better understand how to live our lives before God. So now having heard that story, in the remaining time, we want to to reflect on the meaning of the story and its meaning for our lives. Specifically now, two things I think that we should um, be mindful of as we've read through this story. The first is this, if you're taking notes. The inconsistent character of God's people. The inconsistent character of God's people. Having recently read and studied books like Ezra and Nehemiah, there is, I think, an evident contrast between the people of God there and the people of God seen here in Esther. First of all, we just have to ask, why doesn't anyone mention God? I mean, when you read the other books, his name is falling off their lips all over the place. And and though we would not expect that from pagans necessarily, here, not even the two people that are supposed to be the hero and the heroine mention God at all. Even when Mordecai appeals to Esther for help, what does he say? If you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. But you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. This is for many the most famous book in the verse that is often quoted. But Mordecai never actually even says relief is going to come from God. It just says the Jews will find relief from this disaster from somewhere. But maybe, maybe you're here for our deliverance. Moreover, when Esther asked the people to fast, you'll notice something key is left out of that. Virtually in every place that I could find, just looking through, when people are said to fast, it's always said that they pray. And yet here, prayer is never mentioned once, not just God's name, but not even a prayer that we would assume would go up to God. Prayer is not even mentioned when it comes to fasting. And again, we might assume that if they're fasting, of course they're praying. But again, all of the books talking about people in exile, Esther, Nehemiah, Daniel, prayer is always explicitly mentioned, not just with fasting, but even on its own. Then there is the central conflict of the story. What is the story principally about? It's about Haman's plot to destroy the Jews, right? And, and the way in which they can escape that. But as you heard the story, why was Haman wanting to destroy the Jews in the first place? One thing only. Mordecai refused to bow and pay homage to him. Now understand, this is not Daniel refusing to bow in worship to a king. This is, this is a court advisor. This is like not saying, uh, hey, Barak and saying, uh, Mr. President, and shaking his hand when you meet him. It's the the distinction not between worship and not worship, but rather honoring those to whom honor is given. In, In some ways, we would say, what difference is it that Mordecai was worried about the king and sought to preserve his life, and yet had nothing to do for Haman? Now, some will say it's because Haman is identified as an Agite. That is to say, he is a descendant of the Amalekites, uh, the, the, the long enemies of the people of Israel. Did Haman know that? Was that his motivation? Possibly. But again, we have to ask, was that still the right attitude for him to have for the king's advisor? And then what about the means of deliverance of God's people? As I was preparing this sermon and frankly struggling a little bit with it because though I've read Esther several times to actually have to, uh, to, to look at the people there, not just and say what is God doing here, what should we learn about Him, but how should we respond to the characters, the human characters? Are they good examples or bad examples? It was a little difficult for me. 
And so I called one of my other pastors and, and was talking with him and said, you know, have you ever preached to Hester? You know, what, what do you make of this thing? How do, you, how do you approach this? And one of the things that he said drove him nuts about Esther was that there were several conferences for women and even a couple of books that held up uh, Esther's relationship to Xerxes as a model for husbands and wives. Now, I just found that completely unfathomable, to be honest. I mean, think about how they're, how they're coming together. This is the exact opposite of a, of a healthy marriage. He has all of these virgin brides that he all beds, and then the one that pleased him the most, the one that was not of the most virtuous character, but the one that was best to look at, and you notice that's repeated over and over again about Esther, that's the one he picks as the wife. But even then... She does not, she does not really his wife, she's just the queen figurehead. He keeps all the other women and calls them out by name whenever he wants to. And so not having any kind of real relationship with the king, Esther may not see him for weeks or months, possibly even years on end unless she is called for. That's what made her going and proposing uh, th- th- this plan, appearing before him unannounced, such a question mark. Would she be booted out or killed or would he receive her? You can imagine Esther going to bed at night, seeing one of the other women from the harem going into this person who supposedly is her husband. It would have been uh, the exact opposite of anything God designed for marriage. It was a perversion of it. And yet, it is this very thing, this very contest. As a good Jew, she should have said, I can't participate in that, even if it means death, much like Daniel. She not only participates in and wins, and through all of this uh, very earthy situation, what does God do but turns it around for the good of his people to preserve them and their lives? So the question that we have to ask then, how do we view Esther and Mordecai? Are they the great heroes of the faith that some people hold them up to be, or are they less than that? Frankly, as I read through this, it's, it's ambiguous. I think you can clearly point to some, some very questionable things, but at the same time, uh, there seems to be perhaps some kind, of, some kind of faith in God that's there. And I think, frankly, that ambiguity is the very thing the author wants us to come away with. I think he wants us to be ambivalent about Esther and Mordecai, to be a little unsure as to exactly how we are to think about them, particularly as we, again, hold them in contrast to clearly defined heroes like Daniel and Esther and Nehemiah. And as we think about that uncertainty, I think that two things we should walk away with that we should be certain of. First is this, we should not leave such a legacy that they did. In other words, there should be no question at our funeral where we stood with God. There should be absolutely no question the kind of way in which we will be remembered, where our allegiance lied. It should be clear that we were passionate for and loved more than anything else Jesus Christ in all of His glory. The question then becomes, why is their faith so unevident? Why, why, why? Why is it that there is an ambiguity there? Was it intentional? Have they said we just don't, you know, we're in Susa, we're in Persia, we like it, we just don't care about God? <clears throat> Maybe. I kind of doubt that. Rather, I think knowing the situation in which we find ourselves, particularly Esther being born in exile, a little unclear as to whether Mordecai was born in exile, whether he was taken there, I think what has happened is that because of the lack of influence from God's word and worship, There were many in Israel who simply forgot who they were supposed to be. 
Though they could have came there as Jews, though perhaps their parents said something and kept something of their Judaism, they simply were untrained in the ways of God. They were, they were, they were lacking the knowledge of who they were supposed to be and who the one true God was. It's a terrifying thought, actually. It's one that I was reminded of even yesterday when we were at our um, mission trip meeting. And we were talking about the people group that we're going to work with, specifically that there are things in their culture that lead uh, even secular historians and sociologists to believe that this people group was at one time a Christian people. Though they will divorce like crazy, they will only have one wife at a time. There are no other people groups or tribes that come from where they're at that, that have that kind of moral standard. Unlike the other people groups, they will make sure their kids are fed and survive before they are fed and they survive if it comes down to it. Again, uh, several other things lead them to believe that they're Christians and yet now they're not. In fact, they're hardly anything. They're, they're just by, culturally, by culture default, they're considered Muslim, but they're really not very good Muslims. They really are, are, are very nebulous in what they believe. And the question is, how do they get from there to here? How do they get from perhaps being a Christian people to being people that hardly believe anything? The answer is simply this. Somewhere along the line, one generation forgot to train up the next generation. The gospel can, be, can go from being part of a culture to not part of a culture in only three generations. Do you, do you realize that? You can have a culture that holds fast to the gospel and teaches it to the next generation. The next generation is so inculcated with the gospel, they take it for granted. They assume the gospel when they teach their, that, that next coming generation, their children, and so then that generation forgets the gospel because they've not been clearly instructed in it. You say, does that really happen? Of course it does. Look at all of the mainline denominations now. What has happened? They call themselves Christians but deny every fundamental of the faith and instead are just consumed with social action and social justice. What happened? They lost the gospel. That's what happened. They went from a believing people to an unbelieving people because someone forgot to do what they were supposed to do. And that is not just assume the gospel of the next generation, but intentionally teach them this is who Christ is. This is why we are Christians. This is the most important fundamental thing about our belief. If we ourselves are going to make sure that the next generation does not remember us as a people ambivalent in our understanding, or if our children's generation is going to remain faithful, then we have to remain focused on the gospel of Jesus Christ. We have to purpose not to leave behind a legacy of uncertainty, but to make a clear stance on what we believe and to let that be known by how we live our lives. And to do this, we need to motivate ourselves, again, by grace and the salvation that God has given to us. In other words, we must, in the best, I know it's a buzzword today, but in the best and real sense, we must be a gospel-centered people. We must be a gospel-driven people. So that we don't just say gospel whenever we mention Jesus, but we actually proclaim and understand and depend on the gospel for our very existence. Yes, as we heard this morning from 1 John, we cannot be perfect, but we're seeking a trajectory of life by this gospel-centered focus. So that's the first thing that we should do, is to make sure there is no uncertainty about, uh, how, about how we live and where we stand with God. But there's a second thing that we must also, I think, be certain about and can be certain about, and that is the faithful character of God. This is the second thing, the faithful character of God. Despite the ambiguity of people's lives, God is never far off in the story. 
Whether or not they actually called out to him in prayer during their fast, he was there. As I've said before, the Bible doesn't teach coincidence, only providence. Only the behind-the-scenes, sovereign working of God. And frankly, uh, it, it is absolutely, abundantly clear that is what is happening here in Esther. Just think about this list for a second. Esther just happens to be Jewish and beautiful going into this contest. She just happens to be favored by the king's servants and the king himself. Mordecai just happens to overhear the plot against the king. A report of his loyalty just happens to be recorded in the king's chronicles and just happens to go unrewarded at the time. Haman just happens to notice that Mordecai refuses to bow and just happens to find out that he is a Jew. Haman's dice just happen to land the wrong way each day for a year. Esther just happens to find favor with the king to make her request, not once, but twice. Esther's delay just happens to cause Mordecai to be seen by Haman, and so he plans for the scaffolding. And this just happens to put Haman in a good mood the next morning after the king just happened to have a restless night, where he just happened to read the part of the chronicles that recorded Mordecai's help. The king's servants just happened to remember that Mordecai had never been rewarded for this, even though he had saved the king's life. Mordecai just happens to approach the king when he is considering how to reward Mordecai, or Haman just happens to approach the king when he is considering how to reward Mordecai. And later the king just happens to come in as Haman just happens to be at Esther's feet in a way that just happens to look bad. That's three in one right there. And it just so happens that Haman's scaffold is finished as the king is wanting to kill Haman. Now, after a while, you just have to close the book and say, maybe there is a God, right? I mean, you get so many just so happens, and it's not just so happens. There is a clear pattern that begins to emerge, and it is this. God is at work. And he's not just you know, running around with the plates on the string. He is sovereignly shaping events to bring about his desired plan. Despite the fact that the people should not have even been uh, living in exile, but should have left if they could have, and despite the fact they were clearly not living perfectly the way they should have, God was still watching over them, protecting them, preserving them, even using them as sinful people to fulfill His means. So much so that though Haman was plotting to exterminate the Jews, God reversed His plans and literally hoisted Him on His own petard. Now, all of this should give us comfort because there are times, frankly, when we act like Esther and Mordecai. We go into that movie that we have no business being in. And if someone who was not a Christian saw us, they would have to stop and wonder, I thought that person believed in God and loved Jesus. I thought they were Christians. What in the world are they doing here? And we could go through any number of times when even apart from anybody else, in our own integrity, we are, we are living horribly. I read that the person several years ago, who took over the Holiday Inn franchise, sought with all of his might to make it the most family-friendly, family-welcoming company uh, ever. That was not just from the way the facilities were designed and shaped, but the way uh, the workers were trained in hospitality. And then one day, he up and resigned. And someone said, you've made this into a, a, a multi-billion dollar business. Why are you leaving? And he said simply this, because the board of directors overrode my decision and they attached a Holiday Inn to a casino in Vegas. And they said, what, what does that mean? And he said, I don't mind losing my job, but I can't stand to lose my integrity. Some of us, frankly, when no one's around, we live however we want. We aren't people of integrity. And if the books were to be thrown open, it would be clear there's a huge question mark over our lives and how we're living for God. And yet, and yet even in that, there should be comfort because when 
Esther and Mordecai are not living the way they should, even though they're not seeking for God, seeking for holiness, allowing sin to build up like barnacles on their soul, God is still gracious to them. God is still merciful to them, letting them serve, protecting them, and preserving his people, even when enemies threaten it. So though we may be consistent and faithless, God is always consistent and faithful. Finally, as we think about the book of Esther on this side of the cross, we need to understand that we don't deserve the kind of protection and preservation that Esther, Mordecai, and the Jews received. Those things were acts of grace and mercy on the part of God. In fact, we deserve what Haman got. When we read the story of Esther, there's a real sense in which we need to look at Haman and say, that is what we deserve from God. Because of our sin and rebellion against him, we deserve to be hung, despised, and defeated before all the world to see. And yet, just as God was gracious and merciful towards his people in the old covenant, the Jews, he has also been gracious and merciful to us. For God sent Christ to take the punishment that we deserve. He was hanged, not on a pole, but a cross. Not for his sins, but for our sins. There he hung, despised, defeated, not for himself, but for us, so that the wrath of the king might be abated. That is, God the king. And yet we rejoice that Christ did not remain defeated, but was raised back to life again by God himself. And we must remember that it's because of God's saving work through the death and resurrection of Christ that we can not only live a life of forgiveness with God, but we can also trust God to continue to be gracious and merciful to us even when we fail to be faithful to him. And it's because of that grace, because of that mercy and care that we've received from God both for our eternal souls and for our lives now that we should commit. We should commit to fix our eyes on Jesus and by faith pursue a life that is worthy of the salvation we have received. Father, it's my prayer that as we walk away from the book of Esther and as it lingers in our minds, Father, and questions may still remain as to um, just how godly or ungodly these people were. Father, I pray that as we think about those things, we will remember more than anything that we were once ungodly. That, Father, we, even as your people, once stood under your clear condemnation and wrath because of our sins. And yet, God, even while we were still sinners, you sent Christ to die for us. Father, help us to not only trust in your sovereign care, but in your sovereign grace, Lord, that we might leave a clear legacy behind that we live for you and for you alone. We pray this in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.